And for our last talk, um, I'm very happy to um, invite Vikas Lais of Hollard um, to come to speak to us about combined assurance. Just before um, I read his bio, just thanks to Vikas for some of the really interesting ideas which led to the program. Um, Vikas suggested climate change risk and cyber risk, so a lot of what we've seen today is due to him. So Vikas is, uh, joined Hollard seven years ago as Chief Risk Officer, and he's recently added Chief Actuary to his portfolio. Prior to that, he spent seven years with PwC in both London and South Africa. He's been a FASA and an FIA since 2004, and he's been responsible for developing and rolling out Hollard's combined assurance model for the last four years. Um, I'm looking forward to hearing his insights um, into combined assurance. Thank you, Lucas. Thank you. Good uh, afternoon. It's almost good evening. Thank you for staying for the graveyard shift. Um, I had a very random thought. I've got young daughters, so I watch things like Lion King, and when Scar showed Simba the elephant graveyard, Simba got really excited. So. You're in the graveyard session. I hope you find inspiration from Simba. Um, why are we talking about combined assurance? Um, I'll start off. Some of you might find this controversial. I'll say that financial risk management is easy. Combined assurance gets closer to the operational risk management side of your business. If you think it's all about coordinating independent oversight, if you read King to the letter, you may think you're right. I'm going to tell you you're wrong. Um, I'm going to say to you, this is more about strengthening the immune system of the organization, which is a true combined effort between first, second, and third line, if you allow me to borrow that terminology. Arthur referred to billion rand plus performance guarantees. Short-term insurers like Hollard underwrite some of those risks. Um, it's easy for actuaries to sit at the center to look at the premium numbers and what's happening in your GL and uh, calculate technical provisions, risk margins, solvency margins. But if the person in the business unit who actually underwrites that performance guarantee liability does not actually check the terms and conditions of that guarantee and spot the misalignment between that and your existing treaty terms, and a claim takes place and gets repudiated by your reinsurers, you sit with a billion rand liability to pay. And so that's what combined assurance is all about. It's actually about strengthening the immune system of the whole organization to enable better decision. And therefore, it touches on the heart and soul of the business and how you take risk and how people walk around making decisions, being curious about risk and implications of what they do on a day-to-day -day basis as opposed to a separate topic. If, um, if, you, if you think you're going to walk out of here with all the answers to combined assurance, unfortunately, you're not. But if you do walk out of here, I'm going to share a few lessons with one takeaway, then I would be very satisfied. Um, the audience here knows um, Hollard, I think. Um, I gave this presentation at an international conference not so long ago, so hence the reference to, P to PNC. But um, we effectively have two um, general insurance licenses and then two sell captive licenses, the former region business. And I think if there's a takeaway out of this initial slide a bit about Hollard is Hollard's been a changing organization over the last seven years since I joined. It's more than doubled in people. It's grown to a 35 billion rand asset base. Um, it's a 40-year-old business, but we've acquired business. And when you acquire business, you get new people, you get new process, you get different cultures coming together. Um, and that then, again, speaks to how risk is perceived and experienced in the business. 
So a bit about the CRO portfolio. And I guess this is just a, a side message for those of you who's looking at a career in risk management. So within the CRO portfolio, I look after operational and financial risk capabilities. Um, the actual control or HAF functions um, sit in there as well. We, we look at the regulatory engagement office, so we basically steer communication and engagement with our uh, financial sector regulators. We've created a second-line conduct risk capability um, to help to strengthen the group competence. Group compliance sits in there, uh, group financial crime risk management's in there, and then also internal adjudicator, which is effectively a step between the business normal complaints process and the external ombud as an independent um, uh, body to resolve customer issues. And so I think from a, from a risk perspective, if this is your chosen path, um, I think the, the message for me here is actually in a risk portfolio, A, it's important, but the benefit of getting a much broader and deeper understanding of the business and getting involved in much more diverse fields than just running models. Um, and so although I have a very competent head of compliance and have functions, um, it is fascinating to get more involved in those areas. And so we also service and serve a whole bunch of um, uh, different audiences, board and in very specifically committees sitting under the board. So the birth of combined assurance, uh, I think most people in the room I assume would be reasonably familiar with that, but effectively um, it comes out of the King reports. The first King One report was issued in 1994, uh, which started to bring stronger governance and oversight into corporate South Africa. Uh, second version issued in 2002, and then in 2009 was really the first strong reference to combined assurance, um, with another follow-up of King Four that you'll be familiar with published in 2016, which placed further emphasis on combined assurance. What did King Three say? basically says combined assurance is a recommended governance practice and it's there to improve assurance coverage and quality and it's all about coordination between the assurance providers two minutes ago I said to you it's not that but um, I'll explain that a bit later King 4 elaborated a bit um, and just broadened the scope but it was all about collaboration between the assurance providers and so how did we interpret this as hollard? We said, well, the long and the short of combined assurance is to get the appropriate amount of assurance uh, provided in the right areas of business, achieved in the most cost-effective way, and obtained from the right skills and resources, which makes a tremendous amount of sense. So our, our journey started in November 2013. We had our first combined assurance framework meeting with everyone that we could think of in the room. Um, that led to the launch of an internal pilot project in June 2014. Two years later, we reached a bit of a flexion point where we said this is not quite working for us, and we made a change. Um, in 2014, it was this is not about internal audit or risk management, but just if you're interested, from to, the, the pilot was actually driven, and the first two years was driven by internal audit, and then we decided to shift it into the risk management space in 2015. Um, which has led the journey over the last four years. So what did the pilot project give us? So remember two slides back, I said combined assurance is all about the right people, right assurance in right areas. Um, so it's effectively making sure that you look at all the high-risk areas put in different words, um, and you don't duplicate efforts and you create assurance fatigue. But two years later into that journey, we realized that we're producing these dashboards for our committees, Lots of colors and debates of whether it's risk-based or process-based and who's all the assurance providers, but frankly, they were just dashboards. 
they weren't actually shifting the dial when it comes to delivering a better risk culture in the organization. Um, and we felt there's a, that is a distinct shortcoming. So if I fast forward, there's a typo there. It's a four-year journey. Um, there's nine areas that I just briefly wanted to touch on. Now, in isolation, they are not rocket science. Um, what we've learned is when you miss one of these, one of one or two or more of these components in the organization, it actually just reduces the effectiveness of this whole thing and it could make it land quite flat on its face. On its face. And the second point that I want to make is that the application of these nine or maybe it's 10 or 11 or 13 um, factors in your organization will in all likelihood be different. But I'd encourage you to see if you can find some, some lessons in each of them. So the first one that we recognize is we need to satisfy multiple stakeholders. And in our first iteration of combined assurance, which was really all about second line and third line, saying that we can't go and look at the same area different times, back-to-back -back audits, and we need to look at all the high-risk areas. We recognize that that's just the condition of good service from your second and third line, and that, that doesn't actually add any value. Um, it does tick some boxes from a regulator or call it a king compliance perspective. You've now coordinated efforts, and in theory, you get a better outcome. But what we recognized is we didn't speak to the actual desired outcomes and, and satisfied the needs of all of our other stakeholders, the executive. Our executive team was sitting there and saying, guys, we need to shift the dial. You need to educate my people. I need to raise awareness. I need better decisions in my business. I need better risk ownership. And so the way that we delivered combined assurance by just purely being a combined assurance and oversight capability was not delivering to that benefit. And so we quickly learned that there's a whole range of stakeholders that in what we do and how we do our combined assurance efforts, including first line, needs to actually satisfy all of the stakeholders um, listed on the page. And that's the first takeout for us. And it also involves having conversations with your shareholders um, about what, they, what their needs are. The second one, which again might sound obvious, is buy-in. And so for this thing to work, for any piece of change management, for any piece of framework or policy to actually get embedded and bought into your organization, buy-in is critical. It's easy to get buy-in from your board, from your audit committee, when it comes to the concept of combined assurance, because it says it gives us more, better, integrated information that we can actually rely on from a, from a system of governance perspective. Similarly for the executive, I'll get to the integration into group goals a bit later on and how it impacts on people's bonuses. We had no problem in getting buy-in from our group-wide executive. Everyone's saying this makes a lot of sense. We want value to be added. We want insights into our business. We want it to be a coordinated effort. We want you to upskill our first line. We all in this. The biggest challenge that we experienced was actually the change management and the buy-in that sits in the middle management. So the next level, the next two levels of reporting really into the executive. They didn't necessarily have an issue with combined assurance, but frankly, they did not understand it. We are risk practitioners sitting in a room. We understand risk. We understand likelihood and impact and heat maps and etc. Our middle management does not understand it they see it as something that stands separate to their day jobs. And it's not something that comes automatic to them. So the amount of training, education, upskilling should not be underestimated in rolling out anything like this. The next challenge to be tackled is in our outsourcing space. And so I think we're all very familiar with the importance of outsourcing. 
um, the regulatory requirements and the risk management requirements that, that remain with you as an organization when you actually outsource certain activities or services, and how do you make sure that you embed some of this into your outsource providers? Um, I would say that is the remaining holy grail of challenges that we're facing. We're making a lot of progress in that, um, but also recognizing that outsourcing comes in very different forms. It could be outsourcing of distribution, but it also can be outsourcing of, of uh, claims procurement function. So moving on to the third point, I think probably the biggest game changer for us was linking combined assurance, the concept of combined assurance, and we, we actually phrase this in the organization as the green control environment as part of our group goals. So at a hollow consolidated group level, we've got six categories of goals, social, financial and risk, people, excellence, customer transformation. The financial and risk, each of these are buckets. The financial and risk goal has got a number of financial buckets in there, but it also has a risk goal in it. And that risk goal is attached to this concept of the green control environment. The green control environment rating is the rating that ultimately comes out of our combined assurance set of activities. So it's something that we've actually quantified, if you like. We've put a rating on it. We've put a measure to it. It's something we can set a target for, despite having so many qualitative attributes to it. And it's something that we measure. So in, in line with our board cycle, we go through a CAM process within each business unit and in our center, center units. We arrive there at a rating, and that's the rating that's then used in communicating with the board and the audit committee and the risk committee on the outcomes. And at the end of the year, when it actually comes to performance assessment, um, hollard bonuses are determined or influenced by financial and non-financial performance, and therefore the outcome of the green control environment impacts on people's back pockets. Um, and we use, we use target setting over the year and whether you've actually met your targets or not. Um, when we design the scorecard that actually sits under this, there's 10 metrics that we use that talks to culture, and culture is really about when something goes wrong in your business, do you stick your hand up and actually escalate it? Culture also speaks to the, um, the ability of management to allow for timely remediation of actions that comes out of your compliance or internal or external audit environment. Um, it speaks to coverage. So in your control self-assessments as management that you've done, have you had a refresh of your key control risk and control self-assessment portfolios? And also it speaks to coverage of your independent assurance provider. So do you have a risk-based coverage plan um, executed by internal audit and compliance and et cetera? It also speaks to delivery of those plans. So we have to make sure that as a combined first, second, third line team, we deliver on the internal audit plan of work for the year and similarly on the compliance coverage map. Um, it speaks to um, uh, the amount of risk losses and surprises coming out of the business. And so we build up a qualitative scorecard of 10 factors and we, um, we actually apply that and that impacts on people's remuneration at the end of the day. Um, frameworks and policies. So might sound obvious, um, we spent a considerable amount of time not only redrafting the key frameworks and policies that's referred to on this page because they're all linked to the same topic, um, it was quite timely because of the Insurance Act coming in and all the other um, goys and, and, and standards sitting below that. Um, but we took a big stab at simplifying. And so I don't think any of these policies are more than 10 pages. They're 
between five and ten pages to try and make it pragmatic, absorbable by business, make it available to business, and actually spend an inordinate, of, inordinate amount of time training on those policies. So policy refresh and alignment between those is critical. We spent a lot of time looking at our structure to make sure that the organizational structure as it speaks to first, second, third line actually does what it's supposed to do. And so we made some changes in, in our group structure. In our first line, we established a first line, what we call a business assurance function, which houses all the first line quality assurance, legal compliance, forensics, risk management, etc. Um, and then we have our second and third line um, service providers that actually provide the independent oversight. Um, and the, the key to this first-line structure was these are actually first-line experts in risk, legal compliance, forensics matters to upskill the rest of the senior management team on how to perform proper risk management in the business. It did create, um, you, for those of you who sit in center functions from a risk perspective, you might have experienced business saying, oh, but you guys are looking after risk management, right? So we pushed this front line into first line. We had the complication that even in first line now, the first line guys said, well, first line risk management, you now are responsible. And so we're constantly spending time for this risk function team in the first line to make sure that ownership actually happens with line management uh, within the business. But the message here was that your actual organizational structure, whatever this looks like, so I'm not saying this is better than yours or worse than yours, it needs to support um, your combined assurance model. The next point is the importance around standardization and training. And so we spent a lot of time, there's a, there's a few messages coming from the slide, but effectively um, it actually starts with what's the output that you're looking for. And so spending a lot of time in understanding what does a good MI framework looks like. A good MI framework traditionally, or MI frameworks traditionally focus on financial performance from a business perspective. And so making sure that our MI framework actually encourages financial performance, operational performance, but also risk reporting. And so the risk reporting is then driven by this combined assurance model. The combined assurance model, we spend a lot of time standardizing to make sure that um, ownership resides in the first line and there's clarity around that. We did actually introduce, we were quite slow to the party, so five years ago Hollow didn't do control self-assessments by first-line management. It was all done by the risk management function at the center. So we introduced that as a new capability in the business. Significant amount of change management required, but the message is, you can, in my view, it's very hard to actually embed risk ownership in first-line beyond the concept of owning it if management are not held accountable to perform their own control self-assessments. Uh, in some businesses, they've actually started to call it management self-assessments because people feel more comfortable. I'm saying call it whatever you like, but to, 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 to make sure that risk is own embedded in first line, management has to stand accountable for that. So management performs a risk and control self-assessment aligned with our board cycle. Out of that comes risks and control areas. There's a, a whole bunch of independent assurance that gets done over that, performed over that, and then all of that feeds into a combined assurance forum. The combined assurance forum Again, aligned to the board cycle, I chair those forums at a business unit and central level, where effectively you have a, a, a report done by first, second, and third line to present a view on top-down strategic risks, um, bottom-up risk assessment against the set taxonomy, risk priority areas, key projects in the business, 
um, operational losses in the business, delivery against management actions, uh, remediation actions agreed uh, coming out of previous findings, etc. And out of that, we create a collective view of the state of your control environment, which then feeds into um, ultimately into the board through the various management structures. So you have to have a business process that enables the delivery of combined assurance. The next one I touched on this earlier is you cannot train people enough on this. Um, this is about people need to be familiar. You need to do things in a standardized way. Going back again a few years, we started to build this in a spreadsheet environment because it was still young. We realized that we can't roll out a GRC system and all of this change at the same time, although we did decide to standardize. So we standardized using Excel spreadsheets that drove control and risk self-assessments. Um, and we're now in a stage where we're evolving into um, system um, standardization. But a significant amount of training went into the business around what does our frameworks look like, what's Hollot's risk strategy, that thing that's set at the board level, how does that translate back into how you accept risk into the business? Because that's conceptually what people need to understand. How, do the, how does a claims manager ultimately see their role and how they feed into the risk organization? Without that, it's very hard to actually embed that and make them understand that it's part of their core responsibilities. We train them on policies, on what risk escalation and incident management look like, key risk indicators, etc. And again, it's about standardization of processes and a common understanding. And then last but not least, um, uh, well, the second last point actually, it's about effective integrated assurance. So where we started off the process, we said it's all about this. It's about compliance and internal audit sitting together once a year, coordinating their plans, where they're going to spend their time at to make sure they don't relook at the same area twice and that they look at the relevant areas at least once. Um, but that does, it's not just about that, but that remains a minimum non-negotiable requirement into business. And so we do a lot of coordination between any monitoring work that gets done by our first-line business assurance or quality assurance teams. And then there's an integrated planning process that happens between internal audit, compliance. Actuarial is the latest kit to the block as a, as a control function. Um, and then we also bring, bring key project assurance into that equation to make sure that we actually do deliver an integrated, seamless um, piece of assurance coverage, um, looking at the high risk and the relevant areas throughout the year in an integrated manner. And then the last point is beyond the engagement between the different service providers. I think as a, as a risk leader in the business, it comes down to the mandate that you actually give your second and third line if that's in your, in your reign of control. So what is the mandate that we actually give to our team? The mandate to my team, because it's so easy for someone um, to walk in as, a, as an expert and say, I'm a compliance expert, so I'm going to go in as an analyst and go and look at this business process to see if you've met this part of the requirements of the Act. And my mandate's different. My mandate is the role of all of these risk functions at the center. At the base of this, sits a, there's a piece of minimum governance. So how do we actually meet the minimum requirements in terms of the governance burden that we put on the organization while it's at the same time meets the, meet the regulatory requirements and the, and the requirements of um, independence um, set by the board? But ultimately, I expect all of our assurance functions in the way that they combine with each other and the way that they actually engage with business to influence strategy and to share best practice. 
there's no point in a compliance or a forensics function performing an independent piece of work, pointing out holes in the armor and saying, sorry, I can't help you because I need to be independent from the process. We have to be a lot more pragmatic and as risk experts, we can spot the risk, but we also have an obligation on us to play an advisory role. You don't have to design, you don't have to implement, you don't have to run, but you can at least advise and so should you. And so we spend a lot of time in aligning, there's one or two acronyms on here, but the point is every single personal goal of the eight functions that I showed you on screen, of all the people who work in those functions, are aligned to the group goals. And so in as much as you've got a mandate of independence and a responsibility to deliver on that mandate, your mandate is to provide insight, well, to provide better integrated assurance, but ultimately share insight and best practice with business to help us to deliver on the group mandate. We do that in different ways. There's a few examples. We get heavily involved as a set of combined assurance providers and key projects. Um, but we also do a lot of work on risk profiles. So we engage with our business, looking at the board's risk strategy, looking at the external environment and business strategy. And we advise business on how your risk profile is likely to shape and change over the next 12 months. And what are the things that you may or may not thought have thought about? So those are risk and business insights beyond um, just the pure role of independence. So where does this all leave us? Um, what we've established over the last four years is a much stronger sense of first-line ownership of risk, which no one argued against at the start, but no one actually knew how to do that. We've instilled a culture and a process and a discipline of first-line management actually now being to stand up in a room in front of the board and say, here's my top-down risks that I own. Here's my priority areas. These are my, my bottom-up risk assessments. Here's my priority areas. And it actually allows... Um, well, along with that, we've delivered a much more better integrated um, series of, of assurance activities, um, giving better assurance to the board. Um, and at the end of the day, allows the CRO actually to step away from the detail, look at the self-assessments plus the second and third line reviews, and also as a result, um, give a much more rounded um, and yet independent view of both top-down and thematic risks to the board and, and therefore give them comfort or otherwise. Um, and that's really all I wanted to share with you. So it's been a long journey over four years. I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, um, the conversations don't always get easier. Um, I think the outputs become more um, holistic and more reflective of the nature of the risks in the business. In fact, the most difficult CAM meeting I had with any one of our business unit MDs happened as recently as three months ago, over four years. So the conversation doesn't get easier, but I think the output becomes more productive and value adding for the group and that's what I wanted to share. Happy to take questions before you go for dinner. So we have time probably for two questions for Vikas. Hi Vikas, my previous boss. <laughs> so the one thing I left without really knowing how to do was how do you get everybody in the organization beyond the middle middle managers to understand their role as a first-line person? How do you get that underwriter who sits with that spreadsheet loading the treaty? Mm. 
to understand their role. That embedment mm. is still a struggle for me. Because that's the culture, isn't it? It is the culture. And, and that's, it's, it's the language. It's what people stand for. It, it literally starts at the top. I mean, I know this has been said a million times in the history of the world, but it does start, start from the top. Um, it doesn't automatically filter through, though. And so the key is proactively in my i mean in our experience we haven't we don't have the capacity to engage with the whole organization right so the key is to take it level by level and we've gone down to middle management level um, because practically if your if your levels of working in the organization um, if you can bear with the term are working appropriately a lot of decision making happens at, at the middle level of management and so that's where we've stopped in terms of engaging from a central risk perspective um, but at the end of the day if you if you can embed that culture, um, and that's why we so a it impacts on remuneration, so everyone feels that. So when they get we flex bonuses up and down based on non-financial performance. That's another lever. People understand. Oh, but this flex is made up of this risk thing, and I don't understand it. But I need to make it my business to understand it. And what gets encouraged from a behavioural perspective, and if you actually get encouraged to stick your hand up and say, guys, there's, there's something wrong here. Um, so there's a whole bunch of stuff, but it does come down to culture, and I don't have the right words in two minutes to give you that answer. But we do what we can, um, and we have directly addressed it up until management. And then there's other things like leadership within business units, making sure they're using the right language, and then also remuneration helps. Hi, thank you. My name's Gary. Um, well, interested in knowing what you've done in terms of recruiting and training second and third line people to perform their roles differently? Um, that's, a, that's a great question. You would, be, you would be surprised that if you put this population of people in a room, um, how little they know about what each other's doing. Um, and I'm talking there about the people in my portfolio. And we recognize that um, they they are experts in their own domains and so they didn't even know compliance had a clue what internal audit does because they're the ones that do most of the monitoring and they often bump into each other in the corridors um, but they they didn't have a good idea of what the other functions doing so the first step was to actually help people understand what's the role of this function and how does that add up with the function sitting next to it and delivering a better outcome um, and in the same way that culture is the thing that drives the heartbeats of risk management in the first line that actually takes risk, in the same way culture um, drives the way that second and third line executes on their roles. And so the days of non-productive um, reports that shoots holes into you know, existing, uh, existing controls that slaps unsatisfactory as a, as a big red stamp and on the front page where the materiality was completely wrong as opposed to having a business conversation and solving a business problem. Um, that's where we need to shift to. And so it is, a, it is a constant, I guess it's like any vision that a group CEO would say, it's you just repeat the same thing over and over and over. Where's the insight? Where's the value? Every single day when people perform work, I say to them, I'm not interested in what you're doing if you can't link it to insight and value. Remain independent. Do what you need to do. Audit committee relies on you. 
Um, but if you can't link it back to those, and I think it's a it's a repeat and it's a culture aspect and an education piece to help them to better understand. Oh, and the last one is methodology alignment. So between all of these functions, they even in the risk capacity, they use different terminologies and methodologies. So we've done a lot of work to align. The last bit where there's still a slight bit of misalignment is on the internal audit methodology. We like 90% there, but they do insist on certain things, um, which is, I wouldn't say congruent with, but not perfectly aligned with the rest of us. So methodology is the other alignment, the other factor. Because uh, Colin, Colin, yeah, thanks very, uh, for the very insightful um, presentation. Uh, yeah, I can sort of speak from my experience as well. And I was reading an article recently about the sort of CRO 2.0, where everything was in silos, pretty much as you say. Mm. No one knew what anyone else was doing as they went into CRO 2.0. Everyone sort of gets more involved. And I think you've now sort of touched on the CRO 3.0, which was actually almost a debatable part. Where do the lines, they get blurred between first and second line. So where, and as you say, as long as you're just providing an advisory function and actually doing the work, that line is, is, is still there. So I mm. guess my question is where to from here. Yeah, uh, in terms of 4.0. Well, I can tell you. So, um, from um, if the regulator is still here, I don't think so. <laughs> we'll still come and demonstrate the necessary checks and balances and independent. But from 1 October, I'm chief actuary for Hollard. That's first line capacity. Right? So, there's 4.0 for you. Um, and so, there's different ways. We've thought through it quite extensively. I mean, in my mind, I think the potential of adding, I'm less excited about operational risk, but the potential of adding financial risk with your core corporate um, actuarial capability um, just lifts the game for the organization. So we drive all of our stress testing and scenario analysis, setting of target risk capital levels from a framework and appetite perspective out of this function, but we remain so reliant on someone else's calendar to actually support us. Um, to breach that gap, I think, will make the CRO output, I think, and insights more effective. Um, at the same time, I think it will bring a much more risk-aligned thinking into the, into the old-school corporate actuarial environment to say, well, how do I link my work that I do into a risk insight for business? Um, so I think that's 4.0 in our world. I know the model, it's closer to a banking model, I guess, in a way. Um, so that's, but you always need to make sure that you sort of toe that line. But I think everyone, including, so the audit committee and the board, it's very important for them that you remain independent. Um, but it's, it's even more important for everyone to be helpful and insightful and valuable. And ultimately, we all align to the same purpose. Um, and that's why I sometimes think that um, I'm okay if risk or if control functions remuneration is at least to some extent linked to company performance and objectives because I think that alignment still remains um, important to be a productive enabler for the, for the group. Hi, Michelle Niemand. Because I just want to find out any unintended consequences of implementing combined assurance because one's so busy with putting it in place, establishing a thing, the culture change, and then all of a sudden it starts emerging certain things. We've been on this journey and we've experienced mm -hmm. unintended consequences and we're struggling to manage those. Mm -hmm. And I would just like to hear if you guys had the same and if so, what were they? Um, 
we've had a we've had a lot of lessons i'm not sure all of the i guess you can call them unintended consequences but i think the lessons have helped us to refine some of our methodology um the one of the biggest lessons is when we benchmark this thing um four years ago or three years ago using not this version of the scorecard but that speedometer that you saw we didn't quite have the courage to call things for what they were and so in hindsight, there was a lot of red in the organization, but there wasn't necessarily the management appetite to, to go to the audit committee and say, there's a, there's a lot more holes than what you envisaged. And so you start off with this amber requires improvement assessment. Three years later, when you've made a tremendous amount of progress, you're not quite in that green space. And so defining the target space, the starting point, and how do you recognize advancement in the business um, it's tough and it's a tough conversation and it's also becomes really hard for the CRO or the head of internal audit to actually stand in front of the audit committee and say this control environment is now good enough because we never profess for something that's perfect because that's just too expensive, impractical and so that's not what we're looking for but what is good enough and that's probably been our hardest lesson in defining that and make sure that that doesn't get experienced as a shifting goalpost for business because it impacts on REM, you need to motivate your people. And the business unit MD says, but where's the recognition? So I think that's probably been the biggest, I wouldn't say an unintended consequence, but it's created a lot of conflict in the organization, um, despite the advances that's been made in a consolidated. I'd, I'd love to hear if there's one or two. So we had to have a careful look at our methodologies and how we come up with findings, introduce concepts like IBAMs, what we call them, so issues being addressed by management. Uh, to limit the actual findings because you know we did in our first year we ran through our first year and we called some stats and we had 400 audit and compliance findings remediated by business but the dollars barely moved and people were, what are we doing and we were fighting small fires and i think there's a recognition that out of this should come there's 10 fires these three are the most important ones we'll let the other seven burn i mean that's the reality of running a business right um, and finding a way to express that so that it doesn't actually detract people. Um, and it should be absolutely there to enable delivery of the strategy with an acceptable amount of risk. And yeah, it's, it is hard. Um, but yeah, those are some of the challenges. Okay. Cool. So Thank much. you.